You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. the 42 cast your ultimate answer to fandom geekiness and everything as always i am your host nathan and we have another great episode lined up for you we're going to talk about the star trek movies or to be more precise the first six star trek movies the ones with the original cast we actually bundle in the next gen movies with the next gen podcast and the reason for that i think is fairly obvious uh hopefully it makes sense anyway the next gen movies in my mind weren't made late enough after the series got over to count them as a separate thing. The next gen movies feel very much like an extension of the series rather than something completely different. Whereas the Star Trek movies, which the first one was made 10 years after the series got over, as opposed to them starting to film generations right after next gen ended there's enough time that passed that the movies have their own distinct flavor, even though even among the movies, there's a lot of change and difference. It feels like the movies are their own separate thing more with the original cast. So I did want to dedicate a whole podcast just to those six movies and discuss those. And so the reason that I'm giving this intro or sort of preamble at the beginning is that this is another one of those ones from the backlog that's been pushed back for a while. We actually recorded it back in 2019. I know, uh, a couple of years ago, before anyone knew anything about COVID, and we were much happier back then, so (laughs) I'm just letting you know, uh, in case there are any references or any things that seem confusing, the reason is because this was made in 2019, and so yeah, we lived in a very different world then. (laughs) But anyway, that's all that I wanted to talk about before we got started. I will also mention that, because of the length of this one, we're breaking it into two parts, even though it had been recorded as a single part. So this is the first one since the Tolkien podcast that I'm doing that with. But without any further ado, here is the episode already in progress. Let's meet our guests for this week. And so first off, uh, we will talk to uh, the person who has been my co-host on our trek. And that is my buddy, Stephanie. How are you doing, Stephanie? Hey, I'm doing all right. And um, what's been going on for you since the last time we, uh, we got together, Stephanie? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a book update? Um, I don't remember what the last book update I gave you was, but my first book officially has a U.S. copy right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm submitting to literary agents and I've gotten two rejections so far. So that's awesome. Um, not that I expected to get approved right away. Just, sure. you know, um, and I am actually in the process of writing the third book of the series. All so right. I, I guess I don't know when I last talked about it on here, but there's been progress. Right. <laughs> I remember one time I'm like, I don't know what I'm even calling the book. Right. Uh, <laughs> and now it's got a federal copyright. So. Right. right. 
we had a discussion about titles. Yes. But uh, I still second guess my title sometimes, uh, but <laughs> yeah, it's now submitted to the government with that title. So yeah. So uh, so anything else been going on for you recently? I mean, it's been over a month since the last time we did one of these. So if that gives you sort of a time frame. <laughs> No, I guess everything else has been pretty much the same old, same old. Uh, just typing away and binging TV shows and then getting really into a brand new TV show to the point where I realize, oh, crap, this podcast is today. I better watch the last half of the movies, <laughs> meaning three of the six movies we're going to discuss were watched today. Oh, okay. <laughs> so is that Man in the High Castle you're talking about, the show that was pulling you away from this? Yeah, because I was like, you know what, I'll watch them the week beforehand, that'll give me plenty of time where they'll be fresh in my mind, and it's only a couple of movies that I've seen plenty of times, so it won't be a big deal. And then all of my free time was binging Man in the High Castle, and we're almost caught up to real time now. Oh, okay. It's and like, we started it this weekend. <laughs> it's like this weird thing for me where I do Man in the High Castle in the summer, so I haven't watched the season three yet, but, uh, uh, but we'll probably watch that during the summer when there aren't a lot of shows, you know, to watch. And so well, I'll because be of up. this... Because of this Man in the High Castle stuff, we're behind on the Orville, on Discovery, mm. <laughs> on all these other things that are airing live right now. And there's not even a date yet for season four of Man in the High Castle, but we're just like, we're going to get through this. <laughs> <laughs> and now, because we're both suddenly really engrossed mm. in it. Yeah, I tend to leave a lot of the streaming stuff for the summer and keep up with the broadcast stuff as much as I can. But yeah. <laughs> Well, that's normally how we do it, too, but this show has just managed to break that. And like I said, we started watching it um, the day before I started watching the Star Trek movies, and I managed to get through one, two, and three in one day, and then everything else went to Man in the High Castle until today when I actually woke up early on a Saturday to make sure I could get through the other three in time. <laughs> well, your sacrifice is appreciated. At least it started out with my favorite today. Okay, <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> well, it's good to have you back on, Stephanie. Thank you. Good to be back on. All right. And uh, next up is the uh, guy that is always uh, talking about stuff that it doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> He's always wrong. It is the man you love to hate. That is my buddy, Ryan. How are you doing, Ryan? Well, you know, I was going to compliment you, but now I don't know. <laughs> I feel personally wow, what attacked. A <laughs> no, I, I revel in uh, moments when you say I'm wrong about something because it usually means I'm right. Okay. You know? <laughs> it's, it's the times we agree that always have me wondering and doubting myself. <laughs> Wait, did I mean that? <laughs> Uh, I'm, I, I, I must admit, I do admit that I am struggling to come up with new things to say because after, <laughs> after I don't know how many episodes together, I've pretty much said everything about you that I think that I can. But uh, <laughs> Next time it'll just be, it. here's that dude. Yeah. <laughs> don't even give a name, just here he is. <laughs> Are you the and dude, Ryan? Ryan. <laughs> What's that? Are you the dude? The dude. Well, you know, my hair is long enough right now, and I do have a beard. I, if I shaved, I shaved it into a goatee. Goatee. I could. Uh, <laughs> goatee. <laughs> I've tur I've coined a new fashion. <laughs> I'm the inventor of the goatee. <laughs> Hipster Ryan. 
There you go. <laughs> I was doing it before it was cool, okay? <laughs> you know? So what's so what's been going on for you, Ryan? Uh, you know, basically the same. I've just been indulging in a lot of TV mm. uh, more than I should. It's um, we're still it's wet and cold here, so you know, not much to do outside at the moment. And I have, I've walked away from Pokemon Go, so you know. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. I just got back into Pokemon Go. <laughs> well, my my wife is still playing, so she'll be over there on her phone. Ooh, ooh, it's a it's a this, it's a that. I'm like, what, what? And I'll think about it. But um, I found myself about a month or so ago, this close to buying like a hundred dollars worth of coins, and oh, I was like, yeah, yeah this. This isn't a good thing. I need to stop. You know? That's right. I remember you and I were talking about this the last podcast because I had just started playing again and you were talking about possibly needing to stop. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan, do you need like an intervention whenever you're going to talk about like playing a video game? Because this isn't the first time that you've had an issue with video games and playing to excess. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that too, because like a week after I stopped playing Pokemon Go, I uh, downloaded Civ Four, which is my favorite Civ oh, no. off of Steam. So, you know, no. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's that's not smart on my part. You know, I want who needs sleep? You know, yeah, I know you're just gonna be like, you're gonna get on a podcast. And you're gonna be like, I've been I've been up since like Tuesday, and it's now like yeah. Sunday, and uh, but it's okay because I've got like five Monster Energy drinks here with me. Yeah. Or or to be like, you know, I'll be in the middle of making some cogent argument and then be like, oh, damn, the Mongols are attacking. I've got to- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> so, so besides falling off the wagon, anything interesting going for you, Ryan? Uh, my annual supply of Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies came in. So if you hear me crunching away, that's what that will be. Okay. Yeah. Made with real gir- Girl Scouts? <laughs> Yes, Wednesday. <laughs> Yours have lasted longer than mine. Uh, well, I've got like a couple of dealers. I space them out. <laughs> oh, well. I'm the only person on earth who doesn't like the Thin Mints. Uh, <laughs> all right. They're not my favorite, if that makes you feel better. Oh, wow. Okay. You're like the first person ever who's told me that. Yeah, I agree with Stephanie. Hmm. You're all dead to me. <laughs> They're great, but I, I'm one of those weirdos who actually likes the Samoas the best. Mm. Oh, no, that's that's bad. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And suddenly this podcast falls apart yeah. as we end up in a heated battle. It's too about late for me to hang up. <laughs> 42 cast Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> be the Girl Scout cookie topic. <laughs> all right well uh ryan it is good to have you back on the show thank you you're welcome and next up someone that we haven't had in a long time he is a gentleman farmer he is the doctor and that is my buddy dr eric Cheesum. how are you doing eric real well nathan good to talk to you um and so what's been going on for you uh eric, lately eric you've uh, you haven't been on in i don't know i think two years yeah, it's been a while. Um, I'm still waiting for the second Doctor podcast. Yeah, no, uh, I know. <laughs> well, I'm still waiting on the Lord of the Rings, so... <laughs> yeah, everybody's got ones they're waiting on. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, then there's the third and fourth and fifth, you no, know, and so forth. Um, <laughs> if you want to edit my audio, then you go right ahead, because that's what I... That <laughs> no, would no, really help. Right. <laughs> I do enough of that in my uh, professional life. I don't need to do any more. Sure. Uh, 
I, uh, gosh, in the last couple of years, uh, more academic things than, uh, fan type stuff. I'm, I'm working on a continuing to work on my manuscript about my, uh, sea monster. It's a history of a local sea monster and hoping to get that out in the next year or two. We'll see. Uh, I've been saying that for a decade, so right. you know. <laughs> I know. I'm going to bring back to when we lived near each other. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, life interferes, you know. So sure. you you do what you can. But uh, I I picked it up and have been doing some extra research and going into the archives and, and uh, I keep hoping uh, if if you're listening, Lauren Coleman, I keep hoping you'll hoping you'll ask me to come speak at your cryptozoology conference sometime but uh sadly i don't think our fandoms interface so uh, uh anyway that's that's kind of the extent of what i've been doing mm. um that and like you guys binge watching lots of stuff um i uh i recently discovered the good place which is a, a sitcom on nbc about heaven and hell which has been kind of fun uh, and I've been watching a lot of Family Guy lately too, so okay. uh, catching up on that. I just saw the episode where uh, Stewie captures the whole cast of the Next Generation and forces them to perform for him. So that was that was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, and for those who don't know, it is Chessie the Sea Monster is what Eric is talking about from the Chesapeake Bay, and it's a local legend over there. Yeah, t- totally manufactured legend. Um, but, uh, yeah. But, uh, no, that's great. It's great that you're back, uh, Eric. It's great that you've had the time to, uh, to, to come on with us. And, uh, oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, so uh, glad to have you back on. Glad to be here. All right. And so uh, now uh, for those of you who have uh, listened to the show before, you know what time it is. And that is the time for our five minute controversy. And the five minute controversy is just something that uh, we throw out there. It's a topic that people are discussing right now on the Internet that uh, just gives you a little bit of an insight into how we feel about certain things and gives us a chance to loosen up before we get into our main topic. And so this week, um, Something that uh, what I wanted to uh, mention was uh, a topic that I'm seeing on Facebook uh, quite a bit in the last few days. There's a rumor going around that uh, Disney is going to cancel uh, Marvel's comic uh, publishing and will just license out the, uh, the the characters to other comic companies to produce comics. Um, so. Um, just, uh, of course, I realize it's a rumor. There is no, there are no reputable sites reporting this as fact. Um, so just, I just wanted to get everyone's opinion on, do you think that that's a good move or do you think that, uh, it's, it's just wrong for Disney to even, uh, contemplate something like that? So, uh, Ryan, why don't we start with you? Well, I mean, uh, first off, I don't buy the rumor. I, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, if Disney has shown us anything over the past, 10 plus years is that they like to bring everything in-house um, from you just have to look at what's going on with Netflix right now and their own streaming service the idea that they, they would give up creative control uh, I, I just I don't buy it I think they think they can always get more money if they do it themselves and they're probably right having said that I'm kind of intrigued by the idea only in the sense that I think other entities uh, that would be used that have would have the license might take some creative risks mm-hmm. in directions that you know 
Marvel's parent company, Disney, might not otherwise be cool with. Um, you know, I don't know that I subscribe to the conspiracy theory, for instance, that uh, that that the X-Men were deliberately and mutants were deliberately downplayed for the past you know, so many years because of the whole Fox thing. Ooh, but, I disagree there. Uh, I mean, there's some merit to it, but at the same time, I think, again, Disney likes the almighty dollar more than anything else. Mm. So if, if they could make more money selling X-Men, they will. But um, I guess my point there is that uh, that licensing out the properties, as long as they kind of take a hands-off approach, I think could be good creatively. And it might be the shot in the arm that the comics industry needs. I just don't necessarily think it would happen and i think it's there's a big trade-off there in losing that control and it could very easily go bad as well sure um stephanie do you have uh any any opinion on this well this is the very first time i've actually heard of it mm. um but i am more or less in the same boat as ryan here it sounds like it would be a silly thing for disney to do financially and in terms of how they tend to keep everything to themselves, if at all possible. But going out to people who are uh, trying to franchise out these different properties could definitely lead to some much more interesting and diverse storylines than what we've traditionally had. But I don't foresee it happening at all. I do want to point out there, though, that publishing is expensive. And <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> so it, it is something, I mean, the comics industry as a whole is shrinking um, and has been, you know, for at least 20 something years. Um, probably goes back farther than that, but that's just been since I've been paying attention. Um, and so, you know, the costs of paper are always rising and with the diminishing audience you know, all those factors play into it. So while I get that Disney traditionally does like to keep things in house, I mean, the, 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 the part of this that, that at least gives some credence to the rumor is that, you know, both Marvel and DC are struggling, you know? And so the question is, does Disney feel like they really do turn a profit with Marvel, which I don't really, I don't know. Um, but I, I think it's more plausible than, than we than we might think just based on the idea of Disney liking to keep things in house, um, but uh, but Eric, do you have a, an opinion on this? Well, I, as you know, I'm not much of a comics guy, and I'm I and within that, I've never been much of a Marvel guy. Although um, I think Marvel's movies, of course, have been really quite incredible in a lot mm -hmm. of ways, and very much for the the general audience in a way that the DC stuff just hasn't hit its stride um but i you know you're right when you say that um you know keeping things in-house for disney is expensive um and outsourcing of course puts all the risk on whoever they outsource it to and uh you know license it to um i you know I, when you guys were talking about this it, it put me in mind of the um the business with star trek and discovery and the, the way the license has been fragmented uh, across several different um, corporations and it seems like that's happening with a lot of franchises right now um, and I, that kind of worries me for Marvel um, uh, somewhere Stan Lee is turning in his grave anyway I'm sure um, to see Marvel kind of broken up the way it is but I mean isn't this is sort of what happens with Disney anyway I mean everything they touch sort of um, 
turns to what am I trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> they, they. I mean, look at what they did with Star Wars. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, and I'm not a great, I'm not a huge Star Wars fan either. But even I can see how, how they have altered the product on some basic level um, in a way that has upset the fan base. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, even if it's quality, it's still upset the fan base. And so, getting it, getting the creative side away from disney may well be a good thing but i don't think it's good for the brand overall um so but uh, you know i'm i'm a disinterested observer on this one sure yeah no i think but i think that you took a tack that's kind of similar to what i was thinking of you know would disney even farm out characters piecemeal to different companies like oh right. idw you want you know captain america iron man and thor you get those but yes. you know hey uh titan publishing or whatever you you want the x-men so we farm them out to you and stuff like that and that would just be that'd just be awful like you say that would make stan lee uh turn in his grave i think because the the one great thing about Marvel that you know was what drew me to Marvel, um, you know beyond the fact that Marvel was had a lot of cartoons out when I was a young kid uh, that I sort of uh, latched on to, but was that Marvel had you know this this unbroken interconnected continuity going back to 1939. Yeah. Whereas all, you know, whereas DC had done reboots and everything else and it wasn't the same as, you know, as it had been in the past. Just this idea of, you know, there was so much to explore and learn about the Marvel Universe. And so, uh, you know, that that I think if, if they they farmed it out to a bunch of different, you know, publishing companies would, would be awful. Um, I mean, I think that even if they farmed it out as a whole license, Marvel Comics, you'd get everything it's still most likely that the new comic company would reboot it, but at least the characters could stay together. Um, I think we're in a bad time generally for uh, the integrity of intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the artistic integrity, I should say. Um, the the commodity integrity of it is, is very high, but mm-hmm. that has, I think, in order, to, in order to sell the stuff, they're having to compromise the artistic integrity and i think that's a terrible shame and i mean this has a lot of bearing on star trek right which is you know what we're really going to talk about so i'll i'll back up and let you do your job i guess but (laughs) (laughs) i i i I get i don't know to push back on that a little bit i don't know i think the what's really in danger there is the medium um it's not the content per se it's just that probably 75% of Marvel fans now are fans primarily of the MCU before they are of, you know, page turning pages in a comic book. So I think that we're just in an odd space right now when mediums are shifting and no one's quite sure how to find a way to make comics work and be profitable, at least not profitable to the standard that Disney requires. Yeah, sure. and I mean, to be fair, I mean, the same rumors circulate about DC periodically, too, that Warner is going to close DC and, you know, uh, um, you know, it's not going to be a, a publishing company anymore and the characters might be farmed out to other companies to do comics and things like that. So who knows? And who knows even if it would be more along the lines of DC, Disney might uh, hire another company to do the publishing, but then they're still got some sort of uh, you know creative control. Who knows what what could potentially happen there? But yeah, I, like like you, Ryan, I, I worry that comics as a medium is going away. 
um, wholesale, but I still yeah. think that there's quite a few years before that happens. But all right, yeah, that's so um, I think uh, we're kind of um, split on this as far as the potential for it. Um, and, uh, so yeah, this was, this is a better controversy than some of the ones the last few times where it's been like, we're all agreeing. It's not a controversy if we all agree. <laughs> but, uh, all right. So, a couple where I just had no opinion. So right. <laughs> give me five minutes and I'll get you an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, I, I don't know how to do that. I have an opinion on everything, but <laughs> may not be a good one or a right one, but right. I have it. It might not be an informed opinion, but I, I form an opinion really quickly. <laughs> but, uh, all right. So um, before we dive into our topic, let's pause for a moment for this promo from another fine podcast. I'm Drew Leiter. And I'm Cletus Jacobs. Join us weekly as we journey into DC's infinite frontier. We discuss DC news, comics, television shows, movies, and more. Earth Station DCU is part of the ESO Network. Check us out where fine podcasts are found. And we're back. And like we talked about at the top of the show, uh, we're talking about the Star Trek films with the original series cast. Uh, we are going to talk about the uh, Next Gen movies with our Next Gen podcast, and we're going to talk about the um, Kelvin timeline or Abrams movies, or however you want to define those in a, in a separate topic uh, at some other point. But uh, right now we're going to talk about uh, the motion picture through the undiscovered country. Um so um, I know Stephanie and I have talked a lot about how we came to Star Trek and sort of our history with the franchise. But uh, Ryan, am I correct that this is the first of the Star Trek podcasts that you've done? Um, uh, don't put me on the spot like that. I think so. I think like <laughs> yeah, I'm fully sure. dedicated. I think I've done like we've done some controversies. I know we've talked Trek before, right. but I think this is the first dedicated uh, Trek one that I've done. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Ryan, why don't uh, you tell us um, how you got into Star Trek? Uh, honestly, I don't remember a time when I wasn't into Star Trek. Mm. Um, Sounds like us. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I grew up on it pretty much. It, it wasn't that uh, no one in my family got me on it. Um, I pretty much grew up with, in a muggle household. Um, I do remember my uh, uh, father um, taking me to the, when I was too young to go to movies by myself, some of these movies he took me to the theater to see and he watched it with me. And he seemed to enjoy it, but um, it wasn't something that he was sitting on the couch every week to watch. No, I mean, I, I, <laughs> uh, I saved up, I got a, I got a job um, mowing lawns and saved up enough money to buy my own TV for my own bedroom just so that I could watch Next Gen uh, uninterrupted um, when it came on. So yeah, it was just a it was just a me thing. Okay, all right. So starting watching the original series when you were younger or Next Gen? Yeah, I started. I, I 
I watched Next Gen Live. Um, I missed. Uh, I wasn't around for original series when it aired, uh, but I did catch it in reruns and animated series. So that was yeah. It just it was always there in the background. Yeah. See, for me, I clearly remember when Next Gen started because I had already been watching the original series in syndication. Because exactly. like every day when I came home from school, every weekday afternoon, they played original series. So I was a fan of the original series first and then got into Next Gen. You know, Yo, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I would not have I, pro- I would not have watched Next Gen had it not been for original series and reruns and these movies. Mm. And see, here I am, the baby. Next Gen came out when I was one. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Eric, what about you? How did you get into Trek? Yeah, um, I my experience is roughly the same as you guys. Um, uh, WBFF Channel Forty Five out of Baltimore. Uh, had a line of uh, uh, reruns that started around, uh, you know, four o'clock, five o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you did the, you, you ran the uh, uh, gamut of um, Hogan's Heroes, um, Get Smart, which you know, Get mm-hmm. Smart is is the queen of American sitcoms. What yes. a, a amazing piece of television, um, and you know, the inspiration for my obsession with. Uh, 1960s espionage series um uh and at seven o'clock every night during the week uh and i think saturday too um they ran the original series and you know we my brother and i were just attracted to it for its aesthetic value the uh the primary colorness of it and the 60s design and and it was sort of permissible in my household because even though it was sort of you know, cheap old television to my, my parents, it had people in it that they enjoyed from other shows, you mm-hmm. know, uh, actors and, and so forth. And, um, so off the back of that, then, uh, I, my, one of my formative experiences was seeing a TV broadcast of Star Trek two, um, which uh, bizarrely coinc- coincided with the night I lost a tooth. So I, <laughs> I must have been about seven, six or seven. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have been six in 84. So, um, you know, I vividly remember losing this tooth and, you know, get a little bit of blood and agony from that. And Did then, of course, <laughs> Cavity! Uh, no, no, because, of course, this was my first experience with Khan, but or with the, the movie. Mm-hmm. But, um but, you know, imagine my shock if I thought my tooth pain was bad. Imagine my shock when, you know, Spock, who for my six year old brain was still alive for all intents and purposes uh, at, every night at seven o'clock. Here he, he croaks right on screen in front of me. It was it was pretty traumatic. Um, and then, of course, when Next Generation came along, I mean, I remember seeing the promos for that. Mm-hmm. Um and I mean, I think my brother and I were just I, excitement doesn't even begin to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I recall the promos from that. It's it's sort of like when they did the 96 Doctor Who movie. They the only the only clip they used from the original series was from Trial of the Time Lord. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they ran the promos for Next Gen, I seem to recall that they used the. Enterprise exploding from Star Trek three. Uh, and that was the only part of the original, um, series as it were. 
that they referenced with that um, as far as visually. Hmm. And, um, of course, that, too, is a traumatic experience. Right. <laughs> um, so I guess my Star Trek, um, you know, experiences were all rather traumatic early on. <laughs> right. Well, this is something that I've mentioned on the show before, Eric, but you might get, you know, some interest out of this. My, my daughter, who I struggle with... Um, sharing stuff with because she doesn't like a lot of, you know, what I've tried to expose her to. And after, you know, trying with her with Star Wars and Doctor Who and all these other things that I liked, I, I never even tried with Star Trek because I was like, well, she doesn't like this other stuff. She's not going to like Star Trek. So I'm just watching Star Trek for me because, you know, I started having the idea of doing this podcast series. So I was like, I'm going to watch, you know, all Star Trek all the way through from beginning to end. And so I'm putting on the original series and she's in the room with me, you know, is playing on her iPad or whatever, which happens a lot, not paying attention usually. And then I'm noticing I'm looking over and she's putting the iPad down and watching the TV like a little more and a little more and paying more attention. And this is the original <laughs> Star Trek, mind you. And she starts asking me questions about it and stuff about what's going on and stuff. And it's like suddenly she's like into it. I think that's great, Nathan. Um, I, the great thing about Star Trek as a franchise, at least until Discovery, um, mm -hmm. I think, uh, debatably, uh, is it really is family entertainment. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it was something in my household that was, even, even though my my parents were somewhat skeptical of it, um, it was permissible in the sense, in the sense that, um, yeah, it's, it's sci-fi or whatever, but it, it was good American character actors in good American daring do sort of stuff. And, and so it was family entertainment that all of us could sit in front of right mm -hmm. down to a couple months ago, Star Trek five happened to be on stars one night when I was uh, having dinner over there. And, um, you know, my father very reluctantly let me sit there and watch it. And, the whole time we're sitting talking about actors and, you know, where's Spock and isn't he dead? And, you know, <laughs> so there's it was very much part of the fabric of my growing up, along with the Avengers and, uh, you know, the Wild Wild West and, mm -hmm. um, you know, old movies and so forth. So, yeah. No, so, I mean, it is something that, like, you know, still holds interest even for kids today that they can watch it. And so I think that it's, you know, it sort of stands the test of time that way, too, because a lot of these, you know, what we're talking about today even is is, is old now. <laughs> I feel awful saying that because I remember being in the theater watching Star Trek Six, but I'm like, <laughs> it's an old movie now. But <laughs> anyway. Well, I think, you know, the thing about Star Trek, um, and forgive me, I don't mean to monopolize, I just... Sure. But um, a friend of mine is actually her her um, tenth grade daughter has gotten involved, uh, interested in Star Trek, mm -hmm. and um, it's funny because me, a forty one year old guy, uh, I can converse with this sixteen year old kid about these things that we have in common now, mm -hmm. and she's just exploring the series and and the movies and so forth, and um, it it really does bring people together. <laughs> In, in the way that Gene Roddenberry, I think, probably hoped it did, although right. maybe not in exactly the way. But, you know, it's it's very much an intelligent show that that I think is an interesting community text that people can invest in. 
No. Yeah. Although, interesting now that we're going to talk about the movies, because I feel like the vagaries of Hollywood have kind of run counter to that idea of Star Trek as the intellectual program. Um, you know, and, and, and as we talk about these and talk about, for instance, the contrast between the motion picture and the other movies, I think that that starts to become kind of a, you know, well. a, a stark contrast because the first one was definitely made as an intellectual piece and then from then on they you know they had to sort of succumb more to the hollywood action sort of mentality um but that ryan what were you uh, going to say oh no i was just going to it's slightly off topic um but i was just going to say that uh like it or hate the abrams verse uh it did bring in a new generation of Star Trek fans. And what makes original Star Trek and the movie so great is the fact that those fans who I never saw at conventions until after 2009 and suddenly you had teenagers in Star Trek outfits again. Um, mm-hmm. But the thing is they found – from that, they found this stuff. They found the classics, if you want to call it that. They found these movies and the original series and Next Gen and – they, they hold up so well, special effects aside, that, yeah, they, it is universal. It is timeless in that sense. Well, speaking of special effects and holding up, let's talk about Star Trek The Motion Picture. <laughs> which, which, interestingly, well, I will say this, and I don't know what version you guys have seen or if you've seen both versions. There is a director's cut version of the motion picture that's been out now for like 15 years or so. Um, They finished a lot of the effects that because the movie was kind of rushed, were not finished when the movie came out. And so it is a more polished version. I will recommend that people who struggle with the motion picture should watch the director's cut and give it another try. Cause it also, I feel like improves with some alternate scenes and some changes. It like the overall storytelling I feel is a bit stronger. And it's 15 cut. minutes longer. <laughs> Nathan. And yeah. there's still a 10 minute pan shot of the enterprise. That is so not necessary. Stephanie, Stephanie just uh, traduced on what I think is the most important sequence in that whole film. Um, (laughs) And if if I could make that sequence where Kirk voyages out to the refitted Enterprise, if I could make it the length of the whole movie, I would do it. Um, (laughs) Because I think that it is 10 minutes of majesty. not only because of the amazing score, which I, I have to, the, the scores for st- the original six Star Trek films are exquisite pieces of work. All no, of I'll them. agree with that. Um, but uh, the, the marriage of score and imagery uh, and, and the, the fact that really the Enterprise, we love her. The audience loves her. And I remember reading about stories where when that sequence happened in the theater, people applauded. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is the heart of the film in a way. Um, it's about this love affair that Kirk has with his woman, you know, his, his lady. And um, I, it, it is generally regarded as gratuitous, but I think it is a thing of beauty. They could have at least had the conversation between Scotty and Kirk going on while we're seeing that instead of them in the shuttlecraft. And then they stop talking to look at the Enterprise. And then we're back to them in the shuttlecraft for like 10 seconds saying one more thing. And then we're back to the Enterprise. And and yeah, it, it, there's actually an abridged version on YouTube that brings the whole movie down to 10 minutes. And it did that scene great. <laughs> well, that is pure Philistinism. Um, <laughs> 
but I will I will say a lot of the um, majesty of that scene or that sequence is in the faces of uh, Shatner and <coughs> Doohan. Um, there's a moment when Doohan sort of um, gives a, this sidelong glance at Shatner. Uh, and it's this is, of course, made even more poignant when you realize that they basically hated each other. Um, but they play this scene, and it's like uh, they Duhan is waiting to see Scotty's waiting to see what Kirk's response will be to seeing this beautiful lady out there in in dry dock space dock, and uh, it's it makes it makes me cry. So mm. so there. Well, here's the thing, and it's hard for us now to put ourselves in the mindset of people who hadn't seen Star Trek for 10 years. Because the show had been off the air for 10 years at this point. And so I'm getting a lot of what Eric's saying, and that at the time, audience goers, movie goers, I mean, this is the first time you've seen the Enterprise in 10 years. And so on the big your, screen. Right, and, and on the big screen, it's the first time you've seen it. And so, you know, the effects are very well done. And what a... What a what a, a design triumph the Enterprise is anyway. Um, mm. it, it is a beautiful creation. And uh, anyway, forgive me, I'm gushing. But, you know, <laughs> I, this is why, Nathan, when you asked me which one of these I might be interested in, I had to do the movies uh, because the the aesthetic of the movies is is Star Trek for me. But sure. more on that later, maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, and one of the things about the motion picture is that it was one of the story ideas for Star Trek Phase 2. And for those who don't know what that is, they were originally, instead of doing movies, were going to do a second television series. And so um, this was one of the story ideas that was going to be made into an episode of that series. And one of the reasons why there's a lot of what people consider padding in this movie is because they took an hour-long episode... And changed it into a two-hour movie. And we already had it as an episode in The Changeling. <laughs> well, there are a lot of elements of The Changeling in, in the motion picture, yes. Um, yeah, so so that's the... All right, so we've, we've talked a lot. Stephanie, Eric, and I have talked a lot. Ryan, what, what do you think of Star Trek The Motion Picture? Uh, <laughs> okay, I have seen both versions. Uh, I have not seen both versions... Uh, rather... rather I haven't seen one version this century. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, now I only ever watched the director's cut. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, I, but basically when I talk to people about this, I, I ver Star Trek The Motion Picture is the one movie where I say, if you're a completionist, watch it. If you – it's visual. It is – Stunningly visual, and you know, if maybe you're a little high, it's great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but by and large, you don't need it. It doesn't. I never felt like it added anything to the canon, uh, to the Star Trek universe as a whole. Um, you can make plenty. Of, if you want the end jokes with Viger and so forth, yeah, sure, watch it. But uh, it, for me, it just it. Uh, for me, the Star Trek movies. Everything from costume, it, literally, it was it was a hard retcon reboot between motion picture and two. And for me, the Star Trek movies don't really begin until two. Okay, the well, uniforms I, are a disaster in the motion picture. Oh, Please geez. tell me you agree about that, Eric. Uh, I mean, I I suppose they are. I mean, they're sort of like you know pajama onesies, right? <laughs> um, and they're not. What I don't like about them is they're they're not very flattering, and I don't like mm -hmm. the color schemes. I don't like the fanny pack thing that's on, like, the front of the yeah. uniform. Where it's, like, it's, almost, yeah. I mean, it's very late 70s, isn't it? So if we're going to yeah. criticize that, we should criticize 
everything that we love because you know it's they all wear costumes like that in the 70s um yeah. but i have to i have to disagree with ryan about um, it not contributing anything i think it's quite the opposite i think it is the um the keystone in a way for uh the the arc that will proceed through till star trek 6 and the the the, the basic element of that arc is that uh, Kirk was promoted and he shouldn't have been. He should have not let his ego allow him to be promoted. And from that point on, there's this trajectory where the series is effectively trying to get him back in the captain's seat. And and there's a whole uh, array of narrative things that are happening through those movies where there's a lot of continuity, actually. Um, so even though aesthetically it's somewhat different from the later stuff, and it's clear that they realized they made some mistakes. Um, I think story-wise, you really can't understand the rest of those six films without this one. Considering how many times I saw two through six before I ever even touched one, I always got the storyline no problem. Um, from my personal point of view, I agree with Ryan that it's just kind of a completionist thing. Uh, the motion picture, in my opinion, is the movie that turns Star Trek fans into Star Wars fans. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny that you bring that up because, I mean, you think about the time period. I mean, this is just after the first Star Wars came out yeah. and now we've got. Star Trek the motion picture and you can see that Star Trek the motion picture is attempting to be as much of a visual spectacle as, as Star Wars while at the same time saying stylistically we are something completely different because whereas where Star Wars was a very much action heavy space battle kind of thing the motion picture is still trying to show all those money shots you know have that enterprise see it see all the stuff in, in space dock you know see V'ger the big cloud see these disintegration effects it's all very well done, very beautiful, but it's more cerebral. And it's Gene Roddenberry finally having a yeah. budget of more than $5. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And so this whole movie uh, seems to be almost like a refutation of Star Wars, basically saying you can do a movie that's as big budget, but here's 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 like actual like true science, you know, like the more highbrow science fiction you know, kind of thing, because this is a big concept thing, right? It's the it's the godlike being that wants to find its creator, where you find out the creation is now, has now surpassed the master, but in many ways, but not in, like, one essential way. Well, and that's why it needs so, that, that humanity back infused into it. So it sounds like the motion picture is a cross between 2001 and Space Odyssey and Star Wars, but it ended up with yeah. the worst of both. Yep. <laughs> Basically. Well, I don't know that there's any movie more boring than 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, well, just like there. the motion picture, both of those movies I watch at 10 times speed throughout any time there's no dialogue. <laughs> All right. Well, here's the thing. And here's where, because, you know, there, there are a lot of elements. To that. Motion picture was definitely inspired by 2001. Lots of long space shots, lots of great music. I mean. Stephanie and Ryan, you guys have been talking about the motion picture, but you agree with Eric, at least on that, right? That the score is Oh, really the music good. is fantastic. Oh, and it even absolutely. holds up at two times speed. <laughs> 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 well, and, and the thing is, like, the, the, the main theme was so good, they reused it for next gen. There are 
things that about the motion picture I liked. I mean, this is the first time we see uh, ridged Klingons. You know, this mm-hmm. is uh, I loved uh, the the I loved Spock's storyline in the motion picture from mm-hmm. trying to become you know full on Vulcan to coming back. Uh, yeah, so there are moments of it that that I reach me that endear themselves to me. They just don't feel it's it's not uh, a necessity. I, I I I get the point about um. Kirk's arc, and I can see, yes, the beginnings of that here, but um, yeah, it... I like that you mentioned the Spock aspect because that's one of the things that I really because uh, I've never watched the movies directly after watching the original series episodes in chronological order and then going straight into the movies. And this time that really struck me is the Spock story in the motion picture because the idea that Spock was just a hair's breadth away from achieving that total logic but then he encounters another being that has, and he realizes that that being is just as unfulfilled and empty as, as he feels. Well, I and, think too, um, I, I mean, Nathan, part of that, part of this is the invention of the Kirk Spock McCoy triumvirate, which mm-hmm. although we like to imagine that it exists in the original series really doesn't until the films. Um, and, and so St- Spock's journey is, not only is it contrasted with V'ger, but it's also contrasted with Kirk. And then you have McCoy in the middle of them, right? With, complete with his uh, 1970s um, uh, flared trousers and um, <laughs> denim jacket and, um, and giant gold necklace, right? Yes. Um, but, um, you know, we, the entire aesthetic that we associate with the original cast, um, and, and to a large extent their characters, is invented in the motion picture and then continued to be developed through the rest of the series. Um, mm. and in fact, the Kirk, uh, Kirk Spock duality, um, I would say is largely invented in the motion picture. Um, mm. and there's, there's a great moment in, um, in the motion picture when McCoy comes on board after he fails to be, melted by the transporter and he's, you know, he's in his, um, uh, studio 54 clothes and, um, <laughs> Kirk says, you know, damn it bones, I need you. And it's, it's a kind of interesting parallel actually with star Trek five when famously he says, I need my pain. Right. Mm-hmm. And to some extent McCoy is the kind of the representative of, of Kirk's pain or his, humanity or his whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, It's interesting because really the duality is between McCoy and Spock with Kirk. Oh, yeah. But that's not generally how Trek is presented. No, it's... And see, that's the thing. Like, motion picture is very high concept, right? You know, it's very much trying to, you know, make the audience think in between trying to put them to sleep. (laughs) <laughs> I, I disagree with that, Nathan. I, I, sorry, I don't mean to be totally contrary. And I just, I, I think that we've been told a lot of things about the motion picture that it really are not representative of what it is. I, I don't think it's all that high concept. It's, it's the same sort of themes that have inhabited literature, uh, yeah. much like the revenge theme of 
Wrath of Khan and the rebirth theme. I, I'm sorry. I should I should state more clearly. It is more highbrow than than your typical Hollywood action movie. <laughs> it's not yeah, that it's, I mean, I mean, not that it's like yeah, trying to do anything that literature. That, yeah, that's on. just it. It didn't do anything new. It tried to basically be 2001, and it didn't, and Star Wars, and it didn't bring anything original to the screen in that sense. Except here it is with characters you know. Well, I, I think it, it uses those characters to tell that story in a, in, a, in a way that tells it in their way, and maybe that's what you're saying. But I don't know. I, I just I, – I bristle a little bit at the wanton criticism of the motion picture is this bloated affair that, that the, the bloatedness in a way is the point of the story um, because the bloatedness is the human experience. So, well, there's also the element, I mean, I mentioned it with the shots of the Enterprise and everything, but the other part of it is this is the family reunion, right? Yeah. Again, thinking about this is 10 years since the original series went off the air. You want to spend time with these people. And I think that is part of why it is a little bit longer than it needs to be to tell the story is because they're trying to let you just sort of hang out with the crew because they know how beloved all these characters are. And so... Well, you know. yeah, and I mean, the reunion, too, with the Enterprise, and mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's a parallel being drawn there between V'ger and merging with humanity and the the Enterprise crew merging with the Enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. And the audience is, to some extent, merging with the Enterprise. Uh, it's mm-hmm. It's not for nothing that there's that tag at the end of the motion picture that says, you know, the human adventure is just beginning or whatever it says, you know, that that's not within the context of the movie plot. That's the that's a editorial statement that's being made about us watching that film. Mm. Um, so I we mean, are actually merging with the with the machinery we're we're watching. In a sense, to both of the, both those points, uh, I would say that. Experiencing a movie in the theater with like-minded people um, who are there for the same reason can create a whole new experience. Um, so it might very well have been had I seen motion picture in the theater uh, with a, a packed crowd of people who are all there to see these friends and family that they haven't seen in a decade that I would be defending it uh, to the to the last because it, it creates an emotional moment that really decades later we can't. We can't. We're, we were denied that. We didn't have that. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, by the time I was born, motion picture had already existed. Yeah. And so while I always remember, like, I don't know a time when I hadn't seen original Star Trek, when I saw motion picture, it was already old, right? And so then there were many other Star Trek movies for me to experience. At least the first three were already available for me to experience when I started watching any of the movies. And so I think it loses some of its power. Yeah. Because of that, when it's not, this is what you've been waiting 10 years for. Exactly. Um, um, but uh, so let's move on, though, because uh, <laughs> there's still five more movies to talk about to um, The Wrath of Khan. Now, um, The Wrath of Khan, I, I mean, I don't have any statistics in front of me, but just anecdotally, I think is the one that most people say is the best of the Star Trek movies. Um so, uh, Stephanie, um, since, since we, we talked a lot about motion picture, you know, kind of front-loaded it, um, why don't you uh, give your thoughts on Wrath of Khan? 
Wrath of Khan should be the first one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now that aside, let's put the motion picture stuff to the side. Talk about Wrath of Khan. Um, well, gee, you just kind of throw this at me without any, like, context. Just, here, talk about it. Um, uh, well, well what, are your, what are your thoughts about it? I mean, what, what do you think about Wrath of Khan? I thought it was fantastic that it was kind of the first time that Kirk is finally facing the repercussions of actions of the past. And that mm. stems from the fact that it was Star Trek, the original series was, well almost all Star Treks until Discovery, maybe a little bit with DS9. They've all been incredibly episodic where everything resets at the start of the next episode. Um, And Wrath of Khan set off this chain of events where, as um, I think it was Eric already mentioned, uh, these movies are very consistent with each other. And there's actually references in the last one to things that already happened in uh, Khan. And... um, for the first time, though, Kirk is facing the repercussions of him just kind of leaving Khan and his cronies off on that planet, never bothering to come check up on him. And the anger and hostility that festered amongst Khan's people and finally having some some need to take responsibility for something that he did as the Captain Hero that we know. But it doesn't just stop there, because he's not the one that has to face the consequences primarily for what happens. It's Spock that has to face the consequences. And way, it's, I think that's still Kirk having to face the consequence, because be, it, it's directly linked to Kirk's actions that he <laughs> thinks he loses his best friend. And if it weren't for the Genesis Project, he would have lost his best friend. And so he's right. finally having to face an ultimate loss that just keeps building to the point of, all right, he got Spock back, but now he lost his son. And all of these are a direct cause of something he did 15 or so years earlier and that he never had to face any consequences of. And now suddenly it's just this chain of events that uh, to a point where he has to own up to what he did. The other thing that I really like, because I mean, you can tell that with Wrath of Khan, they're trying to do a redo on a lot of stuff from the motion picture because they do another big time jump, right? Like Wrath of Khan is like another 10 years forward, uh, you know, in universe from the motion picture. I don't, I'm not sure I agree with that. I don't know where you're getting that from. Yeah, I'm not sure where you're getting they, that they, from either. Uh, uh, oh God, I have to look it back up again. But no, look at the, there. there's some lines of dialogue that say something like it's been 10 years. Uh, oh God! Now I'm gonna have to look back up again. But it is a like like motion picture is only two years after the end of the original series because they say something about Kirk. It's been like two and a half years since he's logged a space hour or whatever. But then Wrath of Khan is quite a few years on from the motion picture. Is yeah, it's 15 years after the la- after Space Seed. But right. I don't know that there. I don't know that um, the two years that he hasn't captain to ship or whatever necessarily means that that was on the enterprise you see what i'm saying i i 
No, I see what you're saying. I, I'll have to go back and look into it again. I was looking all that stuff up while I was watching the movies, but there are there's a lot of lines of argument that basically says that was the end of the five-year mission, and then he became Admiral, and it's been two years since the end of the five-year mission that the motion picture starts up. Mm. But I'll have to look that all back up again as far as where that comes from. But that's that's sort of the canon interpretation anyway on the like the official Star Trek sites. Well, it's completely um, wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just don't remember interpreting it that way myself. Yeah, me neither. Me right. neither. Um, but be that as it may, the whole reunion idea like gets started back up again with Wrath of Khan. Like we act like, oh, Kirk's seeing the Enterprise again for the first time in a long time. It's you know we're we're, we're hanging out with the crew again. Like everybody's got those expressions of, oh, there she is, you know, and all that sort of stuff. We we kind of redo that stuff from the motion picture, and um, and um, but but. You know, the, the idea of Wrath of Khan, though, and the concept, the thing that I really like, the theme that they go through, is the idea of Kirk aging. And the whole thing about, you know, he needs glasses now. Yeah, and, it's 50th you know, birthday. Is he, right, is he too old to, you know, make a difference anymore? Can he do this thing anymore? And the idea that, you know, like Stephanie was saying, that he's facing the consequences of his actions. But then at the end, what I really love, that scene, is when he's looking at the Genesis planet and he's looking at how, you know, something's been created from, you know, from lifelessness. And he says, I feel young. That was a wonderful line. Yeah, and through all of this experience and through doing all of this, even though he's lost his best friend and everything else, it's rejuvenated him. Yeah, I think one of the the interesting uh, aspects of that film is the way that it plays with the question of, um, or the the dichotomy between age and experience. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, because... Uh, it's really kind of about the sins of youth in a way and, and how mm-hmm. one, one grows up and confronts the, uh, the baggage of one's past. And um, I, there's an interesting um, parallel to be made, I think. Um, I, you know, I, I haven't really thought this through very far, but, um, you know, Spock sort of becomes this Christ figure across those three films, two, three, and mm-hmm. four. Um, four. Four, maybe not so much, but two and three... Um, and, uh, you know, Spock effectively lays down his life uh, for the sins of Kirk, for the sins of us all through Kirk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it, it's, it's an interesting contemplation on the nature of youth and, and how youth, when you're young, you don't think that things are going to, you know, you're in the present. You know, and when you mm-hmm. get older and you have enough presence to to make up a a couple decades worth of experience, your whole perspective on the world or the universe changes. And uh, I, I, it, it, it always fascinates me that movie. No, I mean it's 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 a really great like thought. But and again, this is why I say that Trek is the flavor that Trek gives to sci-fi movies is something you don't get anywhere else because it's these examinations of the human condition, you know, and and I really love that. And I love that it's a movie that, yeah, it's a cool action movie. And, you know, I love these characters and I love the space battles, but then at the same time, it has me think about, you know, what does aging mean? 
you know what what does you know what you know what does it mean to to get old and, and can you still do the things that you used to do and is there a time when you know you've you know you've been used up basically and you can't go back and stuff like that and so it's 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 really great and and another i mean Rathacon is so many good things the uniforms i think in oh, the yeah. movies are the best uniforms of all star trek i agree wholeheartedly there yeah. The you know I mean because in the TV shows they always seem kind of cheap right I mean and even in the more modern ones like Next Gen and the Deep Space Nine Voyager kind of era where those jumpsuits they they vary and they get better and whatever but they always look to me to be like cheap right and the T-shirts in the original series same problem but the movie the the Wrath of Khan through Star Trek Six new movie uniforms look professional. I believe it as a military uniform. Right. Yes. And it is very much in that sort of British naval tradition, I think, as far as the overall like kind of aesthetic of it. But uh, but yeah, I I love those uniforms. (laughs) Um, And Eric had mentioned the score in the motion picture. Um, The score to Wrath of Khan is my favorite. It's the only one I own. (laughs) I, I own that score. The James Horner score. Um, and, and it's, it's amazing, (laughs) you know, it's, uh, it's a beautiful, I mean, it's a beautiful suite of music, um, that I enjoy listening to while I'm driving. You know, uh, it, it is paralleled also by the score from three, which Mm -hmm. takes a lot of those same themes, uh, and he actually develops them. Uh, a lot of, I think a lot of people tend to think that Star Trek three score is kind of just a. They went back and laid down the same tracks, you know, um, but it's 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 buried, I think, a little bit more in Star Trek three. Uh, but the the score is really an incredible piece on it, too. And yeah, and I mean, we get Ricardo Montalban back, which is something that we haven't talked about yet. But um, but again, I mean, he was already amazing in space scene. You know, uh, he, he's so magnetic and he's got such a great screen presence and you put that on the big screen and, and, and it's great. Cause I mean, he doesn't really have, there's no scene where he's in the same room with Kirk. Not yeah, one. that's right. Right. But we think about this as the movie where, where, you know, Khan and Kirk, you know, are having it out. And that's because of both actors just, like, putting in tremendous performances. And, yeah, they have the dialogues, you know, over the view screen and whatnot. But, you know, they're never in the same room together. And that was a the thing. They, they struggled with the script to try and get them in a scene together. But they just never found a way they made it work. Mm. But I think it worked without them ever actually being together. Yeah. And, and, what I've, and one of the other things I really like about it is that Khan's crew is just like, screw Kirk. Let's just go, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, and that's the problem. I mean, cause Khan is also trying to, Khan is looking backwards too. Kirk's looking backward through a lot of this movie and Khan's looking backwards too. Cause Khan just can't let it go. Yeah. You know, it's about growth. He's got this ultimate device and he could just go and blaze a path of, you know, whatever throughout the, you know, either trade it for, for more weapons and men or whatever, or he could use it as a weapon or he could do whatever he wanted with it. And that's what the, the others are trying to get him to do. But instead he just can't let Kurt go. He turns into Captain Ahab. And so they've both got this, yeah, they've both got this kind of Captain Ahab thing going on, which is, which, which makes it a very interesting story because it's a story that could have been avoided and, Neither one, either side is is trying to do that. I'm not sure I agree that Kirk is Ahab in this. Um, exactly. I, I, 
Kirk is um, Kirk is more like Odysseus or um, I don't know, uh, you know, a, a figure who's come back from war and is now being confronted with the the shadows of the past um, and and the mm. unintended consequences, maybe, or the un un um, unthought about consequences. Um, I, I don't think that obsession is what is driving Kirk, uh, maybe obsession with his youth, uh, which is a theme that is picked mm-hmm. up from the motion picture. Um, because, in fact, the obsession, that is where the obsession is really shown, because he's so obsessed, you might argue that he's willing to sacrifice the life of, of um, Matt Decker all the way right up to the last scene of that first movie, where, thank heavens for mm-hmm. V'ger, it killed off his his competitor for the Enterprise Bridge. <laughs> right? I mean... It's like, wait a minute, we've got this away team with all people we love, and Decker. <laughs> oh, who's going to merge with Deidre? <laughs> um, so, and even, I mean, even McCoy sort of comments on that in the first movie, and then here you have that obsession, kind of, the obsession that he has with the Enterprise and with being the master of the Enterprise is kind of what's driving him. But it's it has nothing to do with Khan, mm. who, by the way, in the original episode, it's you. It's not the most. When you watch the original episode, you think, "Gosh, this is the the episode that launched the second movie." But it's not necessarily a piece of work that would inspire a movie. Um, well, and that's the th- and that's the thing. I think Ricardo Montalban's performance is great in Space Seed. I don't think it's the greatest episode of the original series, but I think that that charisma that he has comes off really well in that movie. And and I get what I get what the director saw, whose name I'm blanking on right at the moment, but uh, yeah, Nicholas Meyer. I get what Nicholas Meyer saw in that show when he said, yes, "Hey, let's sure. bring Con back." And and Montalban was a pretty important star. I mean, don't forget that money wise, or you know, bankability wise, having Montalban in that movie was a great step up from the nobodies that are in the first movie. I mean. Uh, Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I once heard somebody describe the start those first six Star Trek films as um, really well budgeted B movies. <laughs> um, I, I, there's a lot of truth in that. And so Montalban, Montalban is the star of two, um, even though we think of the the Star Trek crew as being the stars. No, I can see that. Um... The other thing, the other intended consequence, the one that we haven't mentioned at all, the other thing that Kirk has to confront is that he's got a kid. You know, the movie doesn't spend as much time with that as it does with Khan, but that's, you know, one of the the, the fascinating things that comes out of this movie is that, you know, after all those times that Kirk's been with, you know, women and all, you know, all the series and all, you know, stuff off screen, is that he did actually have a kid with one of the women. Yeah, he didn't wear his space condom. (laughs) And he seems upset that the mother never even told the son who his dad really is. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's this whole interesting thing where David thinks that Kirk's the villain for part of it. And, you know, there's it's 
it, it's it's kind of neat for Kirk to confront that and to confront fatherhood and the idea that he has this kid and, you know, explain to the kid that, yeah, I'm your father. And and, and I, part of that thing of, of, of Kirk feeling young again is when David finally says, like, you know, now that I know, I, I'm proud that you are my father. Yeah, it's it's a little too pat, really. I think the 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 David sure. section of that is a l- little weak, actually. And and um, I never much like Merritt Buttrick's performance. It's not bad. It's just a little mannered. Yeah, they should kill um, him off. <laughs> you know, the, who I adore in that movie uh, of the guest cast is B.B. Besh. I, I thought you were going to say, um, 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 oh, God, what's her name? Kirstie Alley. Yeah, Kirstie Alley. And I was going to be like, please, no, because she's awful. In the- <laughs> First of all, you're completely wrong about that. Um, <laughs> no, you aren't. Okay. <laughs> Second of all. She's the worst Vulcan ever. Yes, I'm, I would I would fly away with. Savick as Kirstie Alley, or, or as uh, Robin Sachs, or is that her name, Robin Sachs? Um, Robin Sachs and, is fine. But Kirstie Alley is the better of the two. But no, I'm still <laughs> waiting for B.B. Besh to call me up and want to fly away into space. Um, but uh, okay. there's a long list of those people I'm waiting for, and actually, um, I'm really waiting for, um, I, I, I love her so much, I've forgotten her name, but... Um, the, the space whale uh, lady from Star Trek oh. 4. Jillian. Oh, I'm still waiting for Jillian yeah. to call me up and fly off into space studying whales. <laughs> so if you're listening, um, I've forgotten what the actress's name was, but uh, uh, I even have an autographed picture of her and I can't remember her name. But uh, anyway, if you're listening, call me up. <laughs> we can... We, <laughs> Can find whales in the Chesapeake. <laughs> Space whale. All right. So, so, so I want to I want to talk about this because I've I've this is the first time I've ever encountered anyone to say that she was great in this. Kirstie Alley is beautiful and she looks great in Wrath of Khan. She is not playing a Vulcan character. It, her performance is is well, horrible. Disagree as a Vulcan. Well, okay. First of all. Um, wasn't that character supposed to be half Romulan or something? No, that is a fan theory. It has never been stated oh. in any. Yeah, but I thought that in stuff. the original script, that was something that was cut or something. And so she performed it that way. Uh, for instance, there's a part where she is it at Spock's funeral. Maybe she cries. Um, and, and there's a couple yeah. things. Anyway, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, I mean, it, it's okay for Vulcans not to be all carbon copies of Spock. Um, well, fair enough, but I mean, things like crying at a funeral and stuff like that aren't just carbon copies of Spock. That's 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 going way beyond the pale of of Vulcan culture and everything that we know about them. Maybe the so logic. I, I don't know. Tears, I don't Nathan. feel what like. Do you know what it's like on Vulcan. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe they logic. collect that and feed that to their children or something. She was crying because Kirk, like an idiot, was shooting Spock's body off when he was supposed to save it so that it could perform. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's, that creates a problem in the third movie. It's like, why didn't Savick say anything if that's what well, you're they, supposed they to do? Well, they didn't know, anyway, in, in all fairness to the character, they didn't know 
that he had grabbed a hold of McCoy, right? Well, no, no, I know that, but like, but like, Sarek makes it sound like this is just a thing we do. You've got to take the body to the Mount Whatever and do this, and it's like, this is why didn't you know this, Kirk? You know, and so and it's like, like Kirk's not expected to know, but Savick should have known, right? Yeah, right. Well, maybe, anyway. look, maybe she wasn't a very good Vulcan, obviously. <laughs> she was crying and in love and all that stuff. So clearly, why do you think she would know about transmigration of the soul? <laughs> She's young. She's a, She yeah. was a very young Vulcan. Yeah, I, I do think that the beginning of Wrath of Khan is is one of like the probably the best opening to any of those movies where you're there in the simulator, but you don't know it's the simulator. Yeah. And everything's blowing up everywhere and everybody's flying around. That's that's that is a really great and very strong opening. Well, and it has that wonderful foreshadowing, too. Aren't you dead? Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, that that was kind of a necessity as well. I mean, um, because it had leaked that Spock was going to die. As a matter of fact, the only way Nimoy was going to come back, he was done with Trek. The only way mm-hmm. Nicholas Meyer got him back was he said, well, what if you died? And that's what got Nimoy back into it. But then when that got out, they had to write the scene where Spock died in the beginning to throw everyone off. Otherwise, they would have known it was going to come. People would be like, oh, oh, this is what they were talking about. And so it was brilliant. Um, if you saw it for the first time. Yeah, Nimoy was the problem in both of the first two movies because he wasn't going to do Phase 2, which is why the script didn't have him in it, which is why Spock joins everything kind of in progress in the middle of the movie, is that, you know, they kind of had to change the storyline to accommodate Spock once they were doing a movie instead of a new series. So Okay, yeah. I've been stuck on your saying that the Romulan Vulcan thing was just a fan theory. Because I thought that as a cup part as well. So, I mean, it's the IMDb, so who knows the validity. But uh, apparently it was actually Leonard Nimoy who actually publicized that idea on a sci-fi channel airing of the movie while he was giving trivia bits about the film. Um, and he's the one who said that she was supposed to be half Romulan, half Vulcan. Okay. I'm just saying there's nothing canonical saying that. I, I apologize for saying it was a fan theory. So Leonard Nimoy said it, but there's nothing canonical that says that she is half Vulcan, half Romulan. Oh, right. But I, I think she was performing it that way yeah. because that's what she was directed to do. And then they cut all that or, or whatever they were going to do. Hmm. Because well, it's also supposed to be a re- relationship with uh, with David too. Uh, that was apparently in the uh, the novel version of the Search for Spock. Yeah, it wasn't. She supposed to be pregnant by Spock too at the end of yeah, that. Yeah, David's very understanding that it's a fucking thing that she had to do or else Spock would go nuts. So <laughs> says every teenage boy ever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, All right, so let's move on to Star Trek three, which also here's the interesting thing. So we, we've both talked about we, we talked about motion picture and Wrath of Khan and you know things about that. My daughter did not like either one of those movies. Well, I, before we move on, I just want to say, you know, a couple of last things. Sorry. So a couple of sure. things about Wrath of sure. One okay. is I really feel like this one saved Star Trek. Uh, mm-hmm. If this one had bombed, I don't think there was any coming back. This is the one that set up 
the arc that followed. This is the one that made Star Trek um, relevant again. It, it managed to merge that highbrow that we were looking for with the action that we desired in a movie mm. that uh, all the others maybe couldn't do as well. And part of that, I mean, I, I would say that Nicholas Meyer and to a lesser extent, Harvey Harv Bennett saved Star Trek in, in the 80s, in the mm. early 80s. And because they took, I think it was like four scripts. Nicholas Meyer took four scripts that were all, one was about Genesis, one was about Space Seed, and one was about um, uh, Klingons, I think, actually. And he got them all together to create uh, the Wrath of Khan. And, he, and that wasn't his, he wanted to call it Star Trek II, The Undiscovered Country. Guess who wrote Star Trek VI? Um, right. And uh, he called it Undiscovered Country, and then a publicist changed the name to Wrath of Khan. He got the poster and had Wrath of Khan, and uh, it just, he hated that. But other than that, this movie, for me, is, uh, I, I feel, is what say, is the reason we have Star Trek today still. Um, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think the style of Khan is really what carries it. Um, and the, the whole aesthetic of bringing in the, the British naval dimension and the sort of Horatio Hornblower mm. aspect of things, um, which, by the way, is is the aesthetic we think of when we think of Star Trek. I mean, when, yeah. we, when we think of Star Trek, we don't think about the original series. Um, we think about the fully integrated canon of the first six movies. Um, I mean, if you think about... You know, we can rattle off the United Federation of the planet of planets and et cetera, et cetera, and Klingons and who lives where and in what quadrant and all, all that stuff belongs to the eighties. Um, and if you go back to the original series, they're still figuring out what the United Federation of Planets is. Uh, and, and that's that's fine. It's it was a TV show in being in the process of creating it. Um, you know, when we think of Star Trek, we're you know right down to the 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 original crew and who they are, their characters, what roles they perform within that system, that all that all comes from the movies. It doesn't come from the original series. Absolutely. I mean, uh, and Lieutenant Ahura is literally a switchboard operator in the original series. <laughs> she has no character. Yeah. I mean, really, if you reduce it down. I'm sorry, Ryan, I, I talked over no, no. The fan dance right. adds such dimension to her character. It's the movie itself. But, I mean, there are things about Wrath of Khan which shouldn't hold up but do. Like, the force field is dots on a monitor. You know, that's yeah. incredibly stupid, <laughs> but it's awesome. You know, uh, the fact that they used their console to, to deactivate the shields on Reliant is beautiful. Uh, there are mm. so many... Uh, I would say Rathacon has entered the popular zeitgeist more than any other Star Trek. People know what the Kobayashi Maru is who yep. don't know anything else about Star Trek. They, if you, you can shout, Khan, and people will know that's from Wrath of Khan. It's, this is the one which uh, crossed that line. I, and I, oh, I, I, I can't believe that I didn't bring this up before, but we need to talk about that space battle in the Nebula. That is gorgeous. Yeah, it's next to Return of the Jedi, best space battle ever. Well, yeah, and it's yeah, great because, like, Star Wars is all about throwing as many ships on the screen as possible, right? This is a space battle just between two ships, so it shouldn't be all that visually interesting, but because they came up with this idea of the nebula and having that cool, swirly, misty effect, and then allowing them to use the third dimension where you see the ships sort of, like, passing over each other and stuff like mm -hmm. that, that it makes it visually interesting. Thing, you know, and then making both ships blind so the tension is ratcheted up. You know, when you because Khan thinks two dimensionally, right? 
the uh, <laughs> the incredible score that underpins that too. And mm. you know, it's it is rather reminiscent of you know if if Star Wars is uh, World War II in the air, Star Trek's World War II in the water. It's mm. you know it's a submarine wolf wolf pack sort of film. Right, which they had already done with ba- in, in the original series with Balance of Terror, but this just does it, you know, in, on the big screen and does it, you know, better. Um, Nathan, there was something about Star Trek Two I wanted to say before sure. we left it, but I'm, I can't remember it suddenly, so you may as well go on. <laughs> okay. I remember it. So he's reserving the right to come back. Right. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. All right. So yeah. So so the point I was making before was that my daughter. It's interesting because we talk about Star Trek 2, we talk about it holding up so well. My daughter was bored by Wrath of Khan, and she was bored by the motion picture. It wasn't until Star Trek 3 that she started getting interested in the movies. Now, I don't know if that can be generalized to any kind of statement or anything. I just find it an interesting fact, watching it through her eyes and watching these movies. Because I'm like, oh, Wrath of Khan, it's the best, it's the best. And she's like, eh. She's like, I I don't really. Well, I mean, honestly, based off of the rating that you gave or you said she gave to all the movies, Mm -hmm. maybe it also might be a uh, a more feminine perspective because your daughter's uh, preference, if I recall correctly, lined up pretty darn closely to my own. Okay, well, we'll put a pin in that because that'll be interesting. <laughs> I can't remember the exact order, but I know there were a couple of them that she and I were dead on, and sure. here I am a well, almost 33-year-old woman comparing it to, what, a 10-year-old girl. But well, well, anyway. Stephanie, <laughs> I, um, I think that is such a great point, actually, um, uh, about the feminine perspective, because uh, Star Trek Three is notable for downplaying all the women, except for Savick, uh, but like Ahura gets sidelined really uh, inexcusably in that film. But it's a very masculine mm-hmm. film, and yet it's about, I would say, on some level, um, Kirk and Spock particularly, and McCoy even, embracing this feminine, lovey-dovey nature. You know, uh, I don't mean in a romantic way necessarily, but getting in touch with their emotions and um, their, their love for each other. It's non-toxic masculinity, which is the type of stuff that women do love when they see it in men. It's Well, and that's the thing. That's what she talked about was the fact that it's the idea that to help their friend, they have got to go against what everyone is telling them that they have to do. And it's sort of the journey of them saying like, no, we've got to rescue Spock. And so we're going to do this, even if it means that our careers are over, we're going to jail, whatever. And that's the element that really drew her to Star Trek three. And I can understand that entirely. Um, Honestly, I was, when I went into watching all of these again, it's been probably six or more years since I last watched any of the Star Trek movies. Um, and when I went into this, I just wanted to do it with the remembrance of, okay, the odd numbers suck and the even numbers are good. And when I was watching through them again, I'm like, that assessment does not hold up very well because I thought three was actually a very good movie. Yeah, it is. It's definitely the best of the odd numbers. I think all the even numbers are better than three, but I think that three is the best of the odd numbers by far. It holds up to the same caliber as the even number movies. I don't think that, um, I've never thought that Star Trek three was poor. Um, it, it really is a necessary 
second half to to Khan. Um, it's hard to imagine that film being the end of the franchise, you know, with Spock dying because they, you know, there's clearly a, a Christ metaphor being made there. And, but what I find interesting about Star Trek Three is the way that it it takes the franchise. Um, and does exactly what we think the franchise is. Uh, it creates that. So in the motion picture and in Khan, there is this uh, whole federation out there with millions and millions of people, and the Enterprise is a, a, has a crew of 500 or whatever. And But in Star Trek Three, they finally cut all of that crap away and just sort of admit with a fig leaf over it that, it really does take only about six people to fly these ships. And <laughs> not, no, I, mean that, I mean that slightly jokily, but at the same time, in a narrative sense or in a structural sense, it's really carving away all of the exterior stuff and saying, what is it that matters about this? And what are we, you know, what do these people mean to each other? And I, I think, you know, you see that really for the rest of the series. Um, you know, four has all of them together again. And then in five and six, yeah, there's other crew members, but they're just there to interact with the crew. And and the movie sort of accepts then that its own conventions. It stops trying to pretend that it's a cast of thousands. Mm. Uh, and I, I think that's an interesting thing for those movies to do. The thing that I always come back to with three is that three, from a plot perspective, reverses what happened yes. in two. Because two, the whole idea is that you know, you know, Spock sacrifices himself, but now there's this birth of new life, this new planet. And so it's almost this idea of, you know, when McCoy says, do we have the right to play God? It's almost saying, yeah, yeah, we do, because we can create something great from it. And three is basically like, no, this is Frankenstein's monster. This planet is a diseased, horrible thing. But oh, by the way, we get Spock back out of it. <laughs> you know? so yeah, that's, that's what I got from it. It was literally, you know, that the lesson Kirk learned in two about the, you know, unwinnable scenario. Eh, Actually, there is a way. <laughs> well, I think you know if if you uh, if you look at the structure of the narrative framework of Star Trek Three, it is uh, it's playing with the idea of the Firebird, the Phoenix, mm -hmm. uh, right up to I, I believe I'd have to go back and check this, but I seem to recall when the Enterprise, in the most tragic shot in the entire series of Star Trek ever, um, yes, when the Enterprise explodes and then goes into the in, into the planet um, uh, I believe that there are bits of Firebird Sweet uh, Stravinsky um, that are woven into the score mm. and I mean that that is of course all meant to imply new life out of death mm. so I'm not entirely certain that the the Mutara Nebula turning into a planet necessarily has to and then uh, and then falling apart and blowing up necessarily means that new life is over, if you see what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. uh, rather, suddenly the planet becomes an egg, and out of it Spock catches. And I think the metaphor just fell apart, but... <laughs> no, I think, well, see, the thing is, they're, they're trying, they're trying, with Nimoy coming back to sort of salvage something from the previous story. And so that's the issue. I mean, it's, it's a necessary evil. 
of, you know, they have to undo the sacrifice because otherwise they don't get Spock back. So, so I, I get I get what happened there. It's just from, from the standpoint of if you're watching them back to back, it always strikes me that it's sort of like, OK, we say one thing in this movie and kind of spin it in exactly the opposite direction in the next one. But I'm sure that people who had to wait a few years for the next movie, it probably wasn't as fresh in their mind. and They probably weren't even thinking that way, you know, when they came into Star Trek three. There's also the whole fact of, in concept, it was this brilliant thing that we can spawn new life, but then it happened and it proved it was unstable and maybe it isn't as grandiose of an idea as we thought it was. Sure. And so there was just a whole element of the unknown with the whole Genesis project to begin with that we were seeing the actual aftermath of it in the search for Spock. Yeah. And um, we did get that trade off where yes, they brought Spock back, but they did find they did with finality destroy the Enterprise. And next to probably Spock dying, that was the most emotional death in the entire series, uh, for me. Um in no small part because it did last, perhaps, unlike Spock's. But again, the, it, it, Nimoy was kind of the, the issue here. He directed mm-hmm. Search for Spock because that's what he need they had to do for to get him to sign on board with it. Um, and I just, I did want to say real quick that I, our times have changed and our expectations have changed in the sense that Taco Bell ruined uh, Star Trek three for me because they spoiled it. They, they, they were selling collector collectors glasses. And one of them was, and see here, they find Spock. It's like, well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I guess he's coming back. then. You know? <laughs> So I, it's just an observation about how our expectations of spoilers have changed and collector collectors glasses as well. We need to talk about um, the wonderful sequence when uh, the crew, including Ahura in her 10 minutes of screen time, yeah. um, they uh, hijack the enterprise and yes. you know, um, Ahura throws the transporter tech tech into the closet yeah. and, and um, Sulu says don't call me tiny <laughs> and then the whole the whole sequence when the enterprise leaves space dock and the excelsior follows them and then you know uh scotty <laughs> sabotages yes. um that whole sequence is worth the price of admission yes. um yeah. uh but you know the sequence in the film that sells the whole thing for me uh is it's about 10 seconds long and it's when that poor wounded Enterprise comes into space dock at the beginning. Mm. And and Leonard Nimoy apparently had wandered around L.A. one day and ran into Grace Lee Whitney on a, basically homeless on a street corner, I think. And he said, Grace, why, why aren't you in our current film? And she's like, well, because I haven't acted in about 20 <laughs> years. And I've been, uh, you know, whatever horrible thing had befallen. And so he had her in that film. And... Um, she is the person that witnesses the Enterprise come in. Mm-hmm. She's sitting in the diner yeah. or whatever looking out, and she sort of gasps. Yeah. And it makes me cry every time. Yes. And she actually, I think, is in four and six also. So, I mean, it's mm-hmm. like after that, she gets these little cameo roles in the And she's movies. even in that epi- episode of Voyager, too. Right. She? Yes, she is. Yeah. Yep. When they, when see, they this completely is, destroy continuity. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but th- this is also, uh, to go back to, I guess, New Life, Star Trek Three. they acknowledge this. They're, they're in, the wounded Enterprise limps back into, oh, by the way, yeah, Space Dock and Excelsior were both so beautiful. Yes, seeing they them are. on yes. the screen uh, for the first time, both of those. But um, 
and they say, you know, Enterprise is old. We're not going to retrofit her. We're not going to repair her. That's she's done. And that, there's kind of this sense that are they talking about the series? Are they talking about Star Trek? Yeah. And then so the British crew's like, hell no, you know, and just redo reboots the entire uh, franchise. In this and mm-hmm. and the Enterprise sacrifices herself for them the way that they sacrifice themselves for Spock, who had sacrificed himself. <laughs> For right. the Enterprise. <laughs> for, yeah, for the Enterprise. The metaphor falls down a little bit, but you get the idea. It's the circle of life. <laughs> the other important thing, which again, we talked about how David's character was never really flushed out that much. But again, because these movies are all linked together, this is where David dies, which sets up a lot of the action in Star Trek VI and the whole idea that Kirk, you know, can't get over the Klingons killing his son, you know, after this moment. And so we've got that, we've got that set up. Um, which I always really liked that Star Trek Six touched on because, yeah, he thought that he was going to reconnect with his kid, you know, after the second movie, and then that was all just taken away well, from him. Well, thank God for Christopher Lloyd then. <laughs> well, it's, it's, David's death was also the only legitimate time where the Shatner School of Acting actually pays off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that reaction is really well done where he falls out of the chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, let's talk about Christopher Lloyd a little bit too, because he's the prototype for all the Klingons that we see afterwards. Because they got the design in the motion picture for the new Klingons, but Christopher Lloyd's Klingon, Kruj, he's the one that we that, that that all the Klingons afterwards are modeled on. That that behavior, that way of acting, you know, the 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 you know the aesthetic yeah. of it. And um, and so, yeah, even though I sometimes think that, you know, he's not the greatest Klingon, he's definitely the probably the most important Klingon. Wasn't uh, John Lyric a Klingon in this one as well? Yes. Oh, was he one of the Klingons? Oh, yes. Oh, that's, that's right. Amazing. I was like, <laughs> I was so taken back by that when I realized uh, realized he was in oh there, my too. God. He played that dog. Right? <laughs> 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 oh, man. <laughs> There are lots of wonderful touches in that film um, that because of its oddly feminine sensibilities, um, not oddly, but unusually uh, feminine for the series, uh, it allows those moments. Um, and I don't know, I can't remember if they say at the end of it or not, like in the script, um, but it is, like Nathan said, that whole film reverses Star Trek Two in that in that one, the lesson is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. But here, the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. Um, mm-hmm. And Kirk even says that at the end of the movie. Does, does he say that? Okay. Yeah, and Spock seems like totally blown away by that. Like, well, that's you know, because like, it's hippie Spock by that point. Right. <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, but, but yes, Kirk does get to say that to Spock at the end of the movie when Spock comes out and he's alive. But, you know, he's not quite right in the head now. Um but uh, the other the other character that that I absolutely love seeing and, and my probably my favorite supporting character in all of Trek is Sarek. Oh yes. yeah, yeah. You know, because this is when Sarek makes his you know return to the franchise. Even though Mark Leonard had the the bit part as one of the Klingons in the motion picture, this is Sarek returning, and you know he's he's just as great as he ever is. You know, with his conversation with Kirk in the in the beginning of the. Of the, of the film, so um, I was really happy to see, you know, Mark Leonard back. Oh, Mark, Mark Leonard is a, was a class act. I'm, mm. I was so I was as sad when he died as I was for any of the original Man cast. cast. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. an incredible, 
actor and what a presence. No, no, he is another one. He's another one that, you know, I remember throughout my childhood of seeing in other things like Buck Rogers or whatever, you know, that's, oh, there's Mark Leonard, you know, so, yeah. I mean, over the years through the, the movies and to lesser extent next gen and definitely in discovery, They've established this through line that is Sarek. And I, I swear to God, the dude could have his own series by now. Mm. He with probably everything could. He's done. Yeah. Well, but um, now, the, yeah, the Sarek connection gets a little bit better in the next one. But does anyone have anything else they really wanted to say about Star Trek 3? Um, yeah. I, I know we mentioned it just uh, about I feel like the supporting cast had a larger role. Like up until now, mm. it was just Kirk. Spock and and McCoy, but in this one, yeah, it felt like uh, Sulu and Uhura, even though she wasn't in much of it, had a little bit more to do. Yeah, but what she does have, she is fantastic. Yes. Oh my God, she's a. This is when the sexy Uhura kind of emerges, right? The <laughs> right. I should say the sexual, sexy, sexy older woman Uhura thing, right? Um, and yeah, the, I the, think the one who's okay with fan dances. <laughs> well, aren't yeah, we all? movies early. <laughs> <laughs> right. but I, no, but this is the personality yeah. of that. I think actually they begin to see the relationship between her and Scotty here a little bit too. <clears throat> I seem to recall, but I could be off. I don't. Well, I'll bring that up at five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, five is where they really go for it. But yeah, I, I, I caught a little hint of something in this, too, knowing what I know from five. Stephanie, if your response to that relationship is anything other than it made you cry with joy, I would be very <laughs> It made happy. me think, what the f***? No, 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 no. It's beautiful. I mean, I was actually live tweeting five earlier today, so you can go to my Twitter and you'll actually see my, where the hell did this come from? I don't know, but it's so right. It's only, I, I like it a lot better than Spock and Uhura in Kelvin. But Oh, yeah, that's just bleh. That one's no. even more what? Um, Right. This one's at least kind of cute, but can't, yeah. you just, yeah. can't you just see her making him haggis every night? And, and uh, <laughs> you know, he plays the the uh, bagpipes and she does a fan dance. And <laughs> I mean, can't you just see that? And then they practice Klingon oh, with God. all their old dictionaries. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everyone. That's where we're going to have to cut it off for this time. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hope you enjoyed part one. We'll be back next time with our discussion of the rest of the movies, you know, predominantly four, five, and six, although we kind of jumped around with this one anyway. But yeah, in the meantime, you can definitely send us feedback to everything at 42cast.com or go to the website, 42cast.com. Go to Facebook, facebook.com slash 42cast or go to at 42cast on Twitter or Instagram. Let us know what you think. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, whatever. But yeah, without further ado, this is Nathan signing off and hope I see you next week. You have been listening to the 42 Cast, copyright 2021. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42cast.com. Theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42cast is a proud member of the ESO Network.
This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.